All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys on the line. I got Peter Van Buren again. He uh, used to work for the State Department, and he wrote this great book about his time in Iraq War II. We meant well. How I Helped Lose the Battle for the Hearts and Minds of the Iraqi People. Also, Hooper's War, a novel of World War II Japan, we meant well.com is his website, but also he writes regularly at the American Conservative magazine, the AmericanConservative.com. Welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm happy to be here. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, Scott. Yeah, man. You know, I wanted to say, and he's a regular writer at the Libertarian Institute, but I think that only happened the one time. What did I hurt your feelings somehow? You don't want to come no, back around no more? Not at all. You're welcome to reprint stuff. So why don't you? Oh, I don't know. I, I write write me originals. Year. I'll pay you for them. Okay. I can do that, too. Yeah, dude. Yeah. We only did one original together, and the others were, were reprints off of the American Conservative. Listen. And I hasten to add for any new listeners, the American Conservative is actually a libertarian. Uh, I don't know why they, they haven't given some thought to, to, to you know, a, a better title or a more descriptive title. Oh, Besides, I don't think that's right. I, they're, well, yeah. They're, they, they're very libertarian leaning on some things, but I think they're a conservative magazine. Yeah. Okay. I don't want to get into this because I know I watch you guys fight on Twitter about doctrine. And the last thing I want to do is is be in the middle of any doctrine wars. So, well, listen, we need lots of good anti-war conservatives. They can't all be libertarians. No, anti-war I'm completely set with, and there's no, there's no, uh, there's no doctrine to discuss there. Yeah. But I, I see sometimes you guys get into these doctrinal discussions about what is libertarian and who is libertarian and stuff like that. Well, you and know, I like, think. Uh, Whoa, I don't want that. I, I'm just going to stay on the sideline and let you let, you, let the adults uh, handle that. Well, I mean, your writing is all um, certainly the writing in question today about China is all you know could have been written by a libertarian. I think if there's a difference. Uh, uh, that I could, uh, you know, easily uh, jump to, it would be that I think that uh, overall the consensus that TAC is against free trade with China, for example, where libertarians, of course, are always for free trade. So, I'm, I'm and that's a pretty big difference in, in economic nationalism versus libertarian. Sure. You know, no, and I'm fascinated by this because basically I was a rescue dog you know, I had been thrown out. I had been in the State Department where, where we sort of prided ourselves of having no opinion about most things. I mean, you know, a personal opinion about most things. And I had that was sort of my philosophy for, for many years. And then I got kicked out of the State Department. And I thought then that I was kind of a, a liberal and I thought progressive sounded like a good word. And then I found out that they were all, that it turns out I supported Nazis and because I, I supported the First Amendment and that. Some of these wars were justified because they were fought by people who were friends of our friends of our enemies or something like that. And the whole thing got so confusing. And I was left by the side of the road in a box, to, you know, to wither and die. And, and luckily, people like the American conservative and, and you uh, found me and, and gave me a new a new home and a new purpose. So um, thank you for that. I'll, I'll try not to bite you if I get angry next time the moon is full. 
Yeah. Well, hey, that's kind of you. And man, we always love you. I know the audience loves you. And uh, we yeah. always love what you write at uh, okay. antiwar.com and all that stuff. And yeah, you don't, we don't have to agree about every little thing. Um, but well, I mean, here's something that you probably know a lot about. I'm interested in your opinion on how mm. about trade with China? I mean, obviously we're going to be talking about Taiwan today is you got a bunch of great articles about this attack. Sure. Um, and so, you know, I, I want to know everything, you know, and think about America's trade relationship with China and the way it's gone in the last few years since the advent of Trumpism and or even before that, if you want Obama's pivot or wherever you want to start. But it's, there's a lot more to this relationship than just Taiwan. In fact, it's mostly about money. And I guess my bias is I want to hear that the non-military industrial complex companies would like to see our relationship stay stable and friendly and maybe that they're even willing to put their money where their mouth is and try to support, you know, more restrained uh, voices and, and people, you know, in the uh, in the circuit, in the establishment on China policy, because it seems like the arms industry supports all the hawks and they just dominate the discussion here. But I don't know. Well, it's, a, it's an interesting question because 99% of our relationship with China has nothing to do with Taiwan. I mean, Taiwan is this weird appendage, vestigial limb that, that, that grew, you know, it, it was like one of those, it's like that thing on, on, on the back of your, your, on your back that you can't quite get to, but your friend tells you every time he sees it, you better get that checked out. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's like that. It's like, it's this thing grew during the Cold War. And Taiwan became this massive, massive Cold War issue between the United States and China. And we did get very close to, to sophisticuffs here and there over it, but never, never close enough. I mean, we never smelled the other guy's breath that, that close. But the point is, is that it was a major issue and it never really went away. And even as trade with China, even cultural exchange with China, politics with China, China as, as our, as our uh, buddy uh, against, the, against the Soviet Union, even as all those things became very important, we still hung on to this, this Taiwan thing. Now, the thing is, is there are an awful lot of people, as you've pointed out, who profit from this, not only here, but of course also on Taiwan. It helps an awful lot to have this enemy so that you can point all your anger and blame all your bad stuff on, on, on China. And the Taiwan authorities, the people, you know, the government of, of, of Taiwan loves to have this big bad bruiser in the neighborhood that they can point to whenever they need to rally the troops or get everybody behind something or, or when elections come around, they can all take turns seeming tougher than the other party. So it serves a great purpose uh, over there for them. On the American side, recently, it, it's been reborn as the new arms race. Um, up until late Trump, the late Trump administration, we kind of were in a kind of a happy doldrums with Taiwan. We would certainly sell them lots of weapons, particularly expensive stuff like F-16s. Um, but we did it kind of because we always had done it. There hadn't been a lot of drive behind it. And I think some people woke up and, and realized, hey, we can create some trouble over here and use that as a new excuse to sell lots of stuff, big, expensive stuff, not, not, not rifles and bullets and things like that, but nuclear submarines. At the end of the Trump administration, the United States pulled a real fast one on the French. The French had, uh, the Australian government had wanted to buy uh, 
I think four or five nuclear submarines, four or five submarines, I should say, um, in order to increase their their presence in the Pacific Ocean um, and patrol out a little further from from the homeland. And the French had had worked out a deal with the Australians. And at the very last minute, the United States swooped in and said, buy ours instead, because they come along with all these fabulous prizes. And one of the things they included was a new pack uh, called the Quad Pack, where the Australians, the Indians, and that's coming up soon. And we're going to be selling them all sorts of goodies. Um, the, the Indians, and the Japanese, and the United States all get decided they were going to gang up against this new threat from China. Now, the new threat and the old threat were the same threat, but that doesn't mean you can't. Everyone's, it, it, it's like soap powders or anything, you know, Fritos or, or Cheetos or something. Every once in a while, they have to have a new product out there. And it's basically the same old stuff. But they put, they put it out with, with the word new on it. Everybody goes out and buys it. Um, and so the Australians get talked into buying nuclear submarines from the United States at the cost of trillions of dollars. Now, if you're in the industrial military industrial complex, this is the big time. You know, like I said, it's not it's not rifles or bullets or tanks or even F-16s. It's trillion dollars, trillions of dollars worth of submarines, spare parts, training uh, simulators, just about anything that you could possibly want that you could use to, to enhance your budget. And all you have to do is kind of gin up the Chinese threat. Yeah. And there you go. You know, I was talking with uh, Colonel McGregor about Ukraine and mm. I'm like, yeah, but strategic this and tactics that. And he's like, listen, there's a lot of money at stake here. <laughs> and just, this is a guy who's a strategic planner. That was his job. Sure. Yeah, Colonel McGregor. Up. And he's it like, adds, strategy? What's a strategy? That doesn't have anything to do with this. This is all just a ripoff, man. You know, but it's it's like going to Vegas and spending spending two weeks staying up all night counting cards versus walking into the casino, putting it all on, you know, red number seven and walking out a millionaire, uh, you know, 10 minutes later. That's the difference between Colonel McGregor's uh, selling artillery and, 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 and shells and God bless them for that. But when you're talking about selling submarines and submarine technology, that's, that's the big time. And it started under, under the late Trump administration and continued with great enthusiasm with, with Joe Biden. And it basically envisions a new cold war where the Chinese are going to be our, our enemy. And with the exception of, of kind of, see, the Ukraine was just bad timing on everybody's part. We had this whole thing sort of worked out where China was going to be the new enemy. And we were going to uh, blame them for a little bit of everything. And they the Chinese like to pl play along with this stuff pretty good because they've got their own domestic propaganda to worry about. So if you need them to fire off a provocative statement here or there, they're usually pretty good about being able to do that, particularly if you time it with one of their political holidays, which uh, most of which are clustered in, in the fall, uh, October in particular. Keep an eye out for the, the rhetoric to rise uh, coming up uh, next month or two months from now in October. Um, and so the Chinese are just great about it, plus the fact that unlike the real Cold War, where there was a threat of actual fighting at, at different points along the way, there, the chances of us actually fighting a war with, touch, with China over Taiwan or anything else are, are near approaching zero. 
And that makes it the perfect Cold War because there's no actual danger involved in it other than the occasional incident or two, which can easily be uh, bandaged over. Hmm. Well, yeah, I hope that's right. Although, I mean, the thing is about incidents on the high seas is you can lose a lot of sailors at once and then things get real emotional very quickly. Sure, but there's ways to make sure that doesn't happen. I mean, if you look at the the problems that have happened between the incidents that have happened, they've been over single airplanes and and things like that. And even this time around, when when, um, the United States decided that it needed to send an aircraft carrier, quote, closer to Taiwan, uh, uh, unquote, you know, it was way the heck out in the in the Pacific Ocean. It was nowhere near where the Chinese were conducting their own drills and, 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 and uh, exercises. And so the chances of an incident happening were, again, largely approaching zero. The planes can fly real far, but planes usually only have one or two or a couple of guys inside and, and can easily be sorted out about who did you know, mistakes were made and, and, and things like that. Yeah. So both sides are very, very cautious. I think the thing to really focus on though, is not so much the mechanics of, of how to prevent incidents, though both sides, again, are, are pretty good at that, but is, is the bigger why. And that is this, this business about what the other 99% of the relationship is about. And that's trade. China and the United States are among each other's biggest trading partners. Um, You know, you've got to go down into the pennies to start to figure out who's biggest and who's smallest. But we don't need to worry about that. There's massive, massive trade that goes on. And and if anybody was unsure about that, look back just at some of the days of COVID where the supply chains got gunked up. And all of a sudden, you know, your iPhone wasn't available. You can't buy a car because the chips aren't coming over. Um, Hell of a lot of chip, computer chips fit on one ship. So there must have been some real uh, gunk in the system in order to prevent all that from happening. The point being that there's massive amounts of of trade between, among, I should say, China, Taiwan, and the United States. Taiwan, uh, China is Taiwan's largest single trading partner. Um, And that's, that's a real good reason for them not to go to war with one another. Right. And yeah, I mean, in terms of America and China, it's either Canada or China and they're neck and neck. I think sometimes it's Canada, but sometimes it's China is our biggest trading partner. Uh, Can you tell me how much Trump's tariffs and all that really changed that? I mean, I know it's bazillions a year, but so now it's only half a bazillion or I mean, how much difference did it really make? I'm not that good with numbers uh, after since ever since I had that fall and bumped my head there uh, that one time I I ran right into Dick Cheney and and as I was falling I, sw- I tried to switch to a headbutt mm. and I kind of hit the ground the wrong way but um too bad. good to see that's yeah, okay Dick got his comeuppance this week when his daughter got voted out of the out of the uh, off the island for a while so that's nice to see yeah. every time every, every time he comes his face is on tv watching the news i start to scream and curse and my wife looks at me like i'm you know like, did i marry a guy with tourettes or are you just working on it it's like no i'm just working on it here <laughs> but um nonetheless i i don't have the numbers and uh but i can tell you that the tariffs against china were workable and you know, it's important. That In other words, they weren't going to break our major relationship. I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I, I stand ready to be told that that's completely wrong. 
And I would quickly respond by saying, but the relationship isn't broken. And I don't hear the Chinese saying what they've got to do to get out from underneath uh, those, those sanctions. I hear them working around the sanctions. If they need to launder money, they hire Hunter Biden. If they need to uh, build factories in, in third countries, they build factories in third countries. Um, they just don't seem to be acting like a country that is under vicious sanctions and needs to find a way out. Yeah. Um, parenthetically, the same thing with Russia. If you take a look, all these, these sanctions that were supposedly imposed uh, post-Ukrainian invasion, the Russian economy is doing quite well. Uh, you'll remember idiots like Tom Friedman and Paul Krugman talking about how Putin was going to be driven out of office by these sanctions, yada, yada, yada. And all that's really happened is the price of gasoline in the United States has gone up um, and things like that. Shout mm -hmm. out to all my brothers here in Hawaii. We're going to be paying 15% more for electricity because we're going to be switching off of Russian oil. So... Uh, I may not be able to do any more interviews in the future unless we get the steam engine running here. And <laughs> I'm so, on an exercise bike with a little I'll copper a bike, wire yeah. brush thing. Scott, Scott, ask more interesting questions. I'm starting to flag here, man. I'm getting tired. <laughs> get, me, get me fired up again. Ask me how the State Department's treating me these days. And, you know, get me fired up so I can cycle us through the last 10 minutes of the show. Uh, so right, here, may, I'll, we, I'll write that in my notes, man, for yeah, in a minute. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, program notes. So you may need to may need to uh, adapt and overcome. But no, the I, price of uh, I'm going to be shocked if you tell me that they're jerks. Listen, wait. I want to ask you about this uh, white paper that the Chinese yeah. put out when Nancy Pelosi went over there. I want to ask you about Nancy Pelosi going over there some more. Um, she went over there. Apparently, it was the lobbyist from Taiwan who got her to do it, and yeah. led by former Democratic senators like uh, Dick Gephardt and people like that. So. Um, she went over there, and I guess Biden was like, hey, I wish you wouldn't, but she said, I want to, and then he said, okay. And, um, but then, so the question, obviously, is what difference does it make? And then one of the differences, it seemed like, was the Chinese went ahead and put out an official position paper on here's our position on Taiwan. And yeah. it was basically re-announcing their same position inside what, you know, America's strategic ambiguity doctrine which was yeah it's part of china taiwan's part of china but we're not going to retake it by force unless you convince us to and then leaving it at that which is where it's been since 79 right this is the thing that frustrates a uh, uh, sort of we were talking about doctrine you know call, let's, let's call myself a neo-practicalist you know when something works <laughs> i like that that's good when, when, when something yeah keep keep that in mind for the treadmill thing tweets so, going yeah, out right now yeah, okay. So the idea would be that, that when you've got something that works, why not just keep doing that until you need to do something else? And that's certainly what's happened. Some of the most brilliant diplomacy ever done, and I, Henry Kissinger may have had a hand in it, and I like to apologize for, for, for using the word brilliant in that context, but let's pretend he didn't really do the good stuff. And you know, the idea that they created this situation where big China could continue to act like a major country, Taiwan could continue to exist in the state that it, it chooses to exist in. And keep in mind, by the way, that when China and, and Taiwan uh, 
when the United States moved its diplomatic relationship from Taiwan to big China back in the 70s, Taiwan was a military dictatorship. They were still locking up political uh, opponents and torturing them and, and things like that. So we were not exactly siding with the good, good guys um, there was no love on the mainland for freedoms uh, like that either, but neither was there in Taiwan, though it was presented to us as the Republic of Taiwan, Republic of China on Taiwan and things like that. Um, nonetheless, they created a brilliant structure that said there is really only one China and darn it, Taiwan really is a part of it. And we're not saying another word. And that little bit of silence at the end of that sentence allowed both sides to sort of fill it in the way they wanted to in any given situation. And it's a fallback position that is absolutely bulletproof. There is only one China and Taiwan is a part of it. And both sides can quote that to death and say, and say, wink, wink. And it means that we're going to win in the end, wink, wink. And they can both say that and they can either mean it or not mean it. Uh, depending on on the context, you know, I had a, a story. I think I'm, I may have shared at, at one point when I was working in Taiwan for the State Department. I spent uh, two uh, two lovely years there, um, and then went back for some other uh, opportunities. Some guy comes into the office one day with a World War II uh, war bond with uh, Franklin Roosevelt's photo uh, or drawing of his face on there. And it was a bond that said it was a purchase for one U.S. dollar during World War II. And at the Allied victory, the bond would be worth a million dollars. And he wanted to know if we could cash it for him. And, you know, he understood he was being a little bit cheeky about the whole thing. But as best we could tell, it was a legitimate document. It had all the uh, engraving features and everything in it. And so just for fun, we decided to call up the Taiwan authorities at the Treasury there and, and say, so uh, we got this guy and he wants to be paid off this million dollars by the Republic of China. So where should we send him? And they very carefully thought about it. And they said, well, once as soon as we have the, uh, the full treasury on the mainland under our control, we'll be happy to pay him off. So please just have him keep, uh, keep hold of that thing for a little bit longer. <laughs> and it was a brilliant answer. And it was exactly the same answer that you would get when you're talking about potential violence across the Taiwan Straits. Mm -hmm. Once this thing is settled, then it'll be settled. And until it's settled, then everything is in flux and we can make up dumb answers like tell the guy to hold his million dollar bearer bond for another few years just in case uh, we, the authorities on Taiwan, happen to recapture the mainland through some, uh, some freakish thing. And it, it's a system that absolutely works. It's a system that allows both sides to feel they've won that win-win that is always the goal of, of, of diplomacy that's going to last uh, more than an administration. Now, Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi is the turd in the soup of all this because she's got a couple of games that she's playing. Primarily, she's interested in appealing to her home constituency every once in a while. A third of her voters, the people who vote for her in her home district, a third of them are Chinese-American, Taiwan-sympathetic uh, not mainland sympathetic. And she always has to throw them something um, every election cycle. And there's, of course, one coming up. So she's got that. Second, she's got to keep her her, uh, her relationship with the, the Taiwan lobby 
intact. They are now these few, few make jokes about how powerful the Israelis are. In the end of the day, they look like amateurs compared to what Taiwan is capable of doing, much more quietly and much more subtly. The Taiwan authorities have think tanks, they have institutes, they have uh, organizations, they hire advertising agencies, they put out scholarships. They donate, of course, to, to lots and lots and lots of politicians. They are brilliant at roping in folks, and they are brilliant at, at kind of pitching the argument depending on who they're talking to. So they're either the good China that wants to give out scholarships and doesn't impose any academic uh, restrictions on the students, or they're the democracy China, albeit a fairly recent democracy. They only democratized about 1990. Prior to that, as I said, they were a military dictatorship uh, just as much as so-called Red China. Um, but the Taiwan authorities are happy to sell you Taiwan in whatever form you want it in. Nancy is, is buying the we're the only democracy uh, in, in the China world that is willing to work with you side of it. It's kind of, it's kind of the argument the Israelis do, we're your only friend in the neighborhood. Now we do have lots of friends in East Asia. That's not quite as unique as, as the Middle East, but they, you know, Taiwan wants to be your best friend in East Asia. And she buys all that. Just being the cynic that I am, if I'm a neo-practicalist, I'm a neo-practicalist cynic. And, and the answer there is that Nancy is going to be kind of looking for work sometime soon. She'll get reelected to her seat, of course, but she very well may not be Speaker of the House for very much longer. And in which case, the Taiwan lobby loves to hire former ambassadors, former directors of the American Institute in Taiwan, former uh, Congress people, what have you. They, so Nancy may be looking ahead at what could be a very lucrative post-elected uh, official career for herself. So yeah, we'll give her, we'll give her credit for, we'll give her credit for being personally selfish as well as mucking up uh, international politics. Hang on just one second. Hey, y'all, the audiobook of my book, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, is finally done. Yes, of course, read by me. It's available at Audible, Amazon, Apple Books, and soon on Google Play and whatever other options there are out there. It's my history of America's war on terrorism from 1979 through today. Give it a listen and see if you agree. It's time to just come home. Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, the audiobook. Hey guys, I've had a lot of great webmasters over the years, but the team at ExpandDesigns.com have by far been the most competent and reliable. Harley Abbott and his team have made great sites for the show and the Institute, and they keep them running well, suggesting and making improvements all along. Make a deal with ExpandDesigns.com for your new business or news site. They will take care of you. Use the promo code SCOTT and save $500. That's ExpandDesigns.com. Man, I wish I was in school so I could drop out and sign up for Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom instead. Tom has done such a great job on putting together a classical curriculum for everyone from junior high schoolers on up through the postgraduate level. And it's all very reasonably priced. Just make sure you click through from the link in the right margin at scotthorton.org. Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. Real history. Real economics. Real education. Yeah, exactly. Like I was saying, it was Tom Daschle and Dick Gephardt and Bob Dole's groups that came and lobbied all these politicians for Taiwan. Yep. So, 
and that a sounds lot of like the proper path for her you know? and a lot of lesser people too they like ex-governors you know because because taiwan wants you to to uh once they, they like to lobby at the state levels as well they realize that they can only go so far nation nationally uh without bumping into big china but they can pretty much control the, the lobbying at the state levels uh, big china has not been very successful uh in doing that they, they're still a little bit clumsy um Taiwan, and this is just a, an aside, Taiwan has done something that I've seen very, very, very few foreign countries uh, do as successfully, and that is understand how important domestic politics are to U.S. foreign relations. Now, you and I as, as Americans know that and know that oftentimes you know, the Defense Department taking all the pieces that need to go together for an airplane and spreading it among 30 different states. So they have 30 different supporters in Congress is old news. Um, and we also know, for example, the power of the Israeli lobby in local politics when it matters in, in states where they have large Jewish populations and, and or large evangelical Christian populations. Um, but many foreign countries don't understand that, particularly countries where they don't vote for people very often. Um, when I was in Iran, I kept saying that over and over again. The, the, they had uh, guys who would come up and try to, you know, people would interview us, either alleged media or alleged foreign, foreign ministry of foreign relations people. And they were always sort of looking around, what's the secret? You know, how do, how do we break through to the Americans? What, what, what's, what are you guys hiding from us? What, what's, what is it we don't know? And I kept saying over and over again, pay attention to domestic politics um, and get to know that part of it. The Taiwan authorities are great. They lobby governors. They want to put a, uh, a language school at the state university. They want to see if one of the Taiwan manufacturers would build a, uh, an auxiliary plant in, the, in, in Arkansas rather than in Xinjiang and places like that. And they, the, China, the Taiwan authorities are really good. The mainland China people are not very skillful at this yet. They're still learning their way uh, around it. There was an interesting documentary on Netflix uh, about a year and a half ago that got smeared because Obama was the executive producer. Um, but he, his name was just tagged onto it at the very end. And it was about the Chinese building a, uh, the mainland Chinese building a factory in rural Ohio um, and how poorly the whole process went off because the two sides just couldn't find a way to talk to each other. Um, people like Nancy Pelosi will fit right into that Taiwan strategy. It wouldn't surprise me at all that after she gets booted as Speaker of the House, that she finds her way, uh, retirement, and then working for the Taiwan uh, authorities. But until then, she's going to keep messing things up for us in East Asia. Yeah. Now, so um, Gareth Porter about a year ago or something had a mm. thing where he talked about the policy of dual deterrence. The Americans would tell the Chinese politely, hey, mm. don't invade, don't attack Taiwan. You guys know that that would be bad for everyone, right? But then also they would tell the Taiwanese, and you shut up. We don't want to hear a bunch of hawkish stuff out of you about how you're going to declare independence and you're going to pick sure. a fight for us to fight for you. And Gareth said that then they abandoned that policy of dual deterrence. And old what's-his-name, whose name that he named in the article— um, and in the interview that he had given a speech or a statement or whatever and announced that we're not doing that anymore. Now we're encouraging the Taiwanese to be as stupid and belligerent as they can and as 
you wrote about here, there's a big argument that we should just abandon strategic ambiguity altogether and make ourselves very clear to the Chinese that you better not uh, attack Taiwan or we're going to beat your ass good, which, as you argue in the piece, would only encourage the Taiwanese to declare independence and in, which then would essentially mandate a Chinese attack on Taiwan, it, something it, like that. Is it, that about it, right? It's about right. First of all, my hat's off to Gareth because I did. I don't think he's kind of a China guy. I think he's, he's Gareth more knows a, everything, but he knows he apparently knows everything because that idea that we we talk to the Taiwan authorities to constantly try to tap them down a little bit um, is not a secret, but certainly not widely publicized or widely known or or widely discussed. So, all right, Gareth now officially knows everything. Um, I knew it. And you knew it, and you had you had that you had that ahead of the ahead of time. Thing is, is that the, the the Taiwan authorities have this this sort of their own little nuclear weapon, which is proclaiming independence. The Chinese authority, the Chinese, the big Chinese, big China, Beijing, um, has said without a doubt that if they declare independence on Taiwan, they're going to have to invade them. That's that's the red line. You cannot cross that. You cannot uh, mess with all that. And everyone has respected that as, as something that just isn't to be talked about. And even when, for example, when I was there uh, in the 1980s, there was a, the beginnings of democracy and there was the creation of the Taiwan Independence Party. And even that was considered a big deal that they were naming themselves the Taiwan Independence Party. And occasionally they had to make some speech about, well, it's not necessarily independence from China because we already control. There is only one China, but independence from old ways of thinking or something vague along those lines. But one of the thing, one of the many reasons why China would never invade Taiwan is because they might lose. It might not work. Invasions are tricky things. They get bumbled up on, 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 on logistics and stuff you could never really anticipate. And all of a sudden, you find yourself with Taiwan in the lead and then announcing their independence as a way of provoking China at a point where China has already finished itself um, and spent itself failing to invade. So that process of dual deterrence, I've never really heard it called that. But I think it's very, very true, and I think it's very, very much part of it. People like Nancy Pelosi seem to treat it as, a, as kind of a, a bit of entertainment, almost a sport, to see how close to the line they can actually walk these things without stepping on the line. Wasn't there a kid in your high school woodshop class who kept trying to see how close he could get his finger to the saw? <laughs> There was a kid in my class like that. Every every high school wood shop class has. It that wasn't kid. you though. <laughs> it wasn't me, and I, I hope it wasn't you, nine fingered Scott. But I mean, the idea is is that the kid who does that eventually gets his thumb nipped, and that's the whole problem with people like Nancy Pelosi, um, the occasional minor congressperson or senator. They're usually a minor congressperson or senator who you haven't heard too much, who probably wasn't briefed correctly and probably says something like, we have to defend Taiwan, the only independent democracy in the Chinese world or something like that. You know, he'll say something probably out of out of ignorance or naivety and stir up the pot once again and everyone will just have to go around and say wow he probably said it out of ignorance or naivety it's not really uh what we're what our policy is and then he'll get talked back down 
But the idea that we have this dual deterrence is very much, uh, I think, uh, a fairly. I'm, 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 gonna, I'm jotting this down. This is a fairly brilliant way of phrasing something that was has been in existence for a long time. A lot of people also don't know that in the early years of the relationship, we're going back now to the 1950s and early 1960s, the United States actually had to talk Taiwan out of invading the mainland more than a few times. Um, China, big China in its early formation days was not a very organized or very powerful place. Um, yeah, they were army- starving to death. They were starving to. They were literally starving to death. Beijing was was struggling to exert control in the countryside. The People's Army, such as it was, was more of a a, 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 a juiced up police force that was being used for internal dissent. It would not have been that difficult for Taiwan, uh, with a more organized conventional military, to start grabbing some pieces of territory here and there, and pulling the United States in with them. Um, Taiwan actually had a strategy that assumed the United States would be kind of forced into supporting them if they invaded the mainland rather than watching them fail. Um, And we were slinging nuclear weapons around fairly casually back in those days. This was in the the Korean, uh, the the, uh, late phases of the Korean War, where the United States was openly talking about using nuclear weapons. And people like Curtis LeMay were still in government. Uh, Eisenhower was not opposed to these things, except that he didn't use them. But, I mean, Truman himself was uh, was a big fan of the atomic bomb. And so you actually had a period of history that's long forgotten where the United States was telling Taiwan to sit on its hands and not invade the mainland, please. Um, And then now, of course, the deterrence factor has shifted to where we're sort of standing in the background, making sure Beijing understands that we might just possibly step in if they decided to invade Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Um, that's an interesting point, by the way. Speaking of, of Pelosi walk, trying to see how close she can get her finger to the buzzsaw. Yeah. Um, our president, whose name I'm told is, is uh, Joseph Biden, uh, Joe Biden has said three times that the United States will... Uh, support Taiwan militarily if yeah. Beijing invades. Now, if you say it th- once, it's a gaffe. Twice, it's a mistake. I mean, after you've said it three times, you start to wonder if it's not a way of introducing a new policy. Although the that, White House did walk it back as an error all three every, times, every, right? Every three times. Yeah. Yes, that's correct. You know, you're, you're correct. And, and we so, are talking about a senile old man, so we're left to wonder whether he meant it or not or what. And so it may it may have back been to ambiguity, I guess. Ambi- back to uh, maybe Joe is like playing nine dimensional chess with us here. <laughs> um, but it's important for listeners to understand that the United States has no treaty that ob- oblig- obligates it to defend Taiwan. The Taiwan Relations Act, the, the uh, base document that controls relations and where all this there is only one China and Taiwan is a part of its stuff comes from Mm -hmm. Um, that document only obligates the United States a to supply Taiwan with weapons all along which we're you know greedily doing and in the event of hostilities to the exact wording escapes me but something along the lines of consider strongly uh, intervening in, in the war, but it doesn't say we're going to do it the way we have treaties with Japan, with Korea, um, that absolutely right. say, if you shoot at them, we're going to shoot at you. By the way, could you clarify for me about what's the difference between the policies from the Nixon years to Jimmy Carter? 
So obviously, you know, Nixon and Kissinger went over there and shook hands, and they were the ones who first said that, okay, we are no longer, we are now officially switching from the ROK to Beijing kind of thing. Yep. But then something much more was established in 1979, the, the magical year 1979 by Jimmy Carter, right? That's right. And Carter did, did two things, I think, that, that are noteworthy. One is he formalized this relationship in 1979 with the Taiwan Relations Act. And this was a bit of paper that formally said, as, as we've, we've been over many times in this discussion, that there is only one China. Taiwan is a, is a part of it. And laid out some some details of but now all that. now but how is that different than what nixon had said it just hadn't been in a law I, passed by congress I, I, it had just I, been... I don't think it had, it had not been put into law and i think it had been very much something that nixon and mao and uh joe and lai and henry kissinger among the four of them kind of had worked out i see and i don't think they, I think everyone understood the concerns about these things, not not these agreements, not living past the the people who made the deals, um, which is often a, a problem unless you do formalize all this. Um, you can ask uh, Barack Obama about that with his uh, Iranian nuclear deal. Um, it didn't live past his administration because he never managed to formalize it. It was just basically an agreement between him and the people in in Iran. So I think the first thing that Carter did was formalize the agreement in a way that all three sides could live with. And that's also very important because if you force through an agreement where one side is feeling left out, uh, in this case, it would have been Taiwan. It, was e it would have been easy to basically say to Taiwan, you don't count anymore. We're in love with Beijing. Sorry, here's the ring back. We'll never talk to you, you know, uh, again. And you can keep everything. The idea is, is that Carter, through the, the Taiwan Relations Act, and you're going to have to look it up whether I think it was largely in preparation before Carter took office um, and just came to fruition under his, uh, under his uh, political guidance. I can't promise you that it was created under the Carter administration. I'd have, I'm going to have to look that one up myself. Um, but nonetheless, um, it was shepherded, certainly, by the Carter administration. I think the second thing that happened, which was less, less, well, he, I won't put a word on it because it's a fighting word. You know, it was Carter started recognizing the human rights side of the relationship between the United States and China. And that has been kind of a funny thing. That's almost like a, a, a fourth wall to, to the whole relationship. You've got trade, you've got defense, you've got Taiwan, and then the relationship as, as dealing with human relate with uh, human freedoms and things like that seems to kind of swell up every once in a while and become a big deal and then go away every once in a while. It, it seems handy for the United States to kind of cite these things. Nancy Pelosi ran through the whole uh, the whole litany of, of freedoms for, for the people of Hong Kong and freedom for the we the Uyghurs and everything else like that. Um, and the United States seems to take it seriously at times, and the United States seems to kind of back away and just kind of put it back in the back pocket for a while and other times. But it was Jimmy Carter who uh, who did this. Famously, he was trying to get uh, China to open up to uh, travel, and in particular, he wanted the Chinese people to have the ability to travel freely to the United States um, and that to be issued passports when they wanted them. 
And Mao famously, supposedly said to Jimmy Carter, I agree with you. How many million would you like next week? Yeah. Which was funnier in the original uh, English, but um, nonetheless, I'll leave it, leave it right there. Sorry, I just blew the punchline because my mic was off so that you couldn't hear me smoking. <laughs> no, I, I, hey, I heard another non-China joke. It's real fast. Yeah, go ahead. I got, I got bad news and worse news. What's that? The bad news is you're going to die in 24 hours. The worst news is I was trying to call you yesterday. <laughs> there we go. It's humor. It's, it's national politics. I'm it's everything dead. here. All right. What you time know. yesterday were you trying to call me? I'm immediately <laughs> very concerned. Was, this was in the morning. Yeah, or? you don't you don't get these jokes, do you? Okay, yeah. that's all right. That's all right. That's all right. I mean, you know, only 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 Gar Gareth knows everything. You you and I have to suffer down here in the bottoms. Try my things. best here. I want to bring up one more point um, right. about Nancy Pelosi's visit, and it was more revealed. Pelosi. Go ahead. It was revealed to us by by the Koreans. Got almost no press coverage in the United States, but the Koreans didn't even meet her at the airport when she landed in Seoul. They actually didn't even send a high-level delegation or any official uh, high-level people out there to, to do the whole handshaking uh, welcome to, to Korea thing at all. And Korea's uh, prime minister wouldn't, didn't meet with her. He said he was too busy. He was on vacation. And he didn't actually even hold a meeting with her. In the end, they pressured him into taking a, a phone call. South Korean president, I'm sorry, I said prime minister. South Korean president uh, Yoon actually skipped in-person meetings with Pelosi in lieu of a phone call due to his being on summer vacation right in the same city. He actually was at an opera the night she landed and wasn't going to be taken away from that to go say, shake her hand at, at, the, at the airport. and. Pelosi, to, for her part, managed to keep the entire discussion and the entire state public statements that she made in Korea to herself uh, and largely not talk about anything to do with China. She talked about the usual bland, you know, peace on the peninsula, denuclearized mm -hmm. North Korea, blah, 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 you know, the, the standard stump speech stuff. But she did not mention China officially at all. And she brought home the point and the south koreans had no problem making this point that they have to live in this neighborhood right that long after nancy pelosi goes home and works on domestic issues or turns her attention to to abortion questions or things like that they have got to figure out a way to exist coexist with china and preferably to do that independent of whatever goofy foreign policy ideas the united states may come up with yeah and it's not it's not just South Korea, Singapore and Malaysia kind of flirted with this, though they were polite, a little more polite than the South Koreans. In the end of the day, South Korea realizes that its relationship with North Korea depends on its relationship with China. And a bellicose relationship with China, the way Nancy Pelosi wants it, is not going to calm relations on the Korean Peninsula, which is ultimately what Seoul is, is mostly worried about. Yeah. So there's a massive, massive complex amount of things swirling around China that just get overlooked and it just the, the, the military industrial complex people and the media who just wants to simplify everything are really trying to kind of push it back and store it again in a big box called the new cold war. Um, 
But in fact, it's a very complex relationship that involves trade, that involves defense, that it brings in North Korea, brings in our allies in, in Singapore and, and South Korea, and talks about the domestic problems in the United States, trying to reconcile those with our foreign policy, never mind a senile president of the United States who can't even quote his own, his own uh, official government documents. So yeah. it's a wonderful topic to pay attention to, and I would encourage you to ask Gareth more questions about it um because he seems to have it together yeah well he's right now writing a book about the origins of the last cold war oh so, wow um it's going to be the groundbreaking volume i'm certain but we're gonna have to yeah. wait for that yeah. um but now so i mean this is kind of a common theme right around the pacific is that america's trying to rally everyone against china and they're mostly saying that they don't see the mileage in that they figure that that's going to make them uh, you know, cause them more problems with China rather than protect them from a menace that they otherwise don't see coming, correct? Exactly correct. The only people who see that differently are the Australians. Mm -hmm. um, under their current government, the Australians have taken a, a much more aggressive stance uh, against China and, among other things, have signed this, this quad pact with the United States, which is a quasi-defensive uh, arrangement, and they have purchased nuclear submarines. Now, nuclear submarines up the ante. The Australians prior to this had the old-style uh, diesel subs, um, which still make up the, the uh, most of what the Chinese have fielded. And the Australians had basically kept to their home waters. But in the last couple of years, the Australians have acquired their first real aircraft carrier. It's, it's arguably more of a helicopter carrier, but it's capable of blue water operations and it's capable of force projection. And if they go ahead and buy the F-35s, it's going to be capable of fielding uh, offensive jets. They've got that in in the water already and, and very likely to upgrade it. And now they've got nuclear submarines on order that are going to be operating uh, with the United States in the Pacific Ocean. Um, Australia has also participated very vigorously in the recent RIMPAC exercises, which were the largest um, defense uh, live fire exercises in the Pacific every year. It's called, it's called RIMPAC. And uh, they just participated very aggressively uh, in that. Their ships are still in the, actually it was, it was done off the waters of Hawaii. And I saw their ships out here just uh, not recently, uh, so they're still in the water playing around and practicing and things. It makes it easy to, to keep it safe to come all the way to Hawaii to do these things rather than do them in their home waters or do them in the, in the uh, neutral Pacific where the Chinese are, are going to be uh, potentially present. But yeah. nonetheless, Australia is, is an exception. The rest of, of, of Asia, I think, um, well, I guess you've got to count Japan because Japan does what it's told. And so if the United States tells it to become more aggressive to China, toward China, the Japanese will simply do it. And they're rearming themselves quite aggressively uh, as well. And they'll have blue water capabilities, uh, if not, if they don't have them already, very, very soon. Um, and all of that is amazingly threatening to the safety and security of East Asia. And all of that is disturbing to status quos, which have otherwise kept the peace for 70 some years. Yeah. Hang on just one second. Hey, y'all. They've got great deals on weed at thehempspot.com. The Hemp Spot specializes in Delta-8 tetrahydrocannabinol instead of Delta-9, so they can send it straight to you anywhere in America. Recently, a friend moved and didn't have a guy in his new town, but then he heard about thehempspot.com on my show and was saved, figuratively and literally, because if you use the promo code SCOTT, you get 15% off every order. 
and free shipping on any order over $100. Legal jams, bud, gummies, and the rest in your state. TheHempSpot.com. Spell the THC. You guys, my friend Mike Swanson has written such a great revisionist take on the early history of the post-World War II national security state and military-industrial complex in the Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy years. It's called The War State. I have to say, it's the most convincing case I've read that Kennedy had truly decided to end the Cold War before he was killed. In any case, I know you'll love it. The War State by Mike Swanson. Well, now... When it comes to China's increased Navy here, they say mm-hmm. just in raw numbers, they got the biggest Navy in the world now. And yep. the idea, certainly from the right-wing hawks in the media, is, yeah, obviously they're trying to supplant the American Navy as the rulers of the world. And otherwise, uh, why would they be doing this? And I keep reading, you know, so-called restrainers and realists and yeah. more reasonable types. I don't know if they're all neo-practicalists or not saying that, nah, they're just building that up as mainly a deterrent force against the United States and potentially an attack force against Taiwan, but not against anybody else or no attempt to replace our Navy, uh, you know, on the seven seas around the planet, that kind of thing. Um, But that seems like a lot. What do you mean? They have more ships than we have now. They must be preparing for something or something. So how do we understand that from your point of view? Yeah, size still matters, and and so be careful when you just count the number of holes in the water because a lot of what the Chinese are fielding are are probably more equivalent to to they call them they call it navy, but it's probably more equivalent to what a coast guard would be equipped for and equipped to do. Um, second, a lot of their stuff is growing and in growing in sophistication and growing in technology, but it's still not there yet. The United States Navy is is still the most powerful maritime force ever to exist. And the Chinese have a long, long way to go. If you just look at the, the United States has, I think, 13 full-size carrier battle groups. The Chinese have one active aircraft carrier. They're building two more. Um, and that'll be three versus 13. And theirs are nowhere close to what we are able to yield in terms of the aircraft that they put on them. Um, and then when you get into things like force projection, um, our ability to land Marines uh, around the world and things like that, it's just really no, no competition. The Chinese are building and they're getting better at it. The Chinese are, are enlarging their Navy, both in quantity and quality. But ask yourself, if you were a country that was fully dependent on international shipping for your economic survival, wouldn't you have a Navy? And that's the case with China. It's not so much why are they building a Navy now, it's why hadn't they built a Navy in the past? Well, the answer's obvious, right? They're looking at our empire collapsing, and they're not sure whether America is going to be able to pick up the fees for their security services indefinitely they've got they've got oil that that flows through the middle east they've got stuff that goes through the straits of malacca these are places that have real live active pirates you know guys with eye patches and our trump was totally right about that i mean trump said why are we we have our uh, this massive naval presence in the middle east and we hardly buy any middle eastern oil at all we're exporting oil and meanwhile all that oil is going to China. It's going to China. And how come we're paying for the security services there? And I can't remember who it was. Hell, it might have been you. 
uh, told me <laughs> that they had a big public discussion in China that maybe Trump is right. And in fact, the fact that he's even talking this way means maybe we need to look at whether we need to expand our naval presence in the Middle East to protect our own oil instead of relying on American taxpayers to pick up the cost of all of our security services here. And they decided, nah, as long as Uncle Sucker is willing to pick up the tab for it all, then that'll be fine. And so, just like the Germans, the Chinese, our supposed worst adversaries, are on American welfare. Well, this was the, this was the whole deal, Bretton Woods, yada yada yada. You know, after World War II, the United States was going to become the guarantor of the global liberal economic system, and that meant that the United States Navy was going to ensure that people had freedom of navigation around the world. And so we sort of, you know, chose that role for ourselves. And how it's played out is is a great discussion for another time. But I mean. The idea being that if you were China and you had your entire economy is based on exporting stuff by sea, which is what they do, then you're going to have a navy. And you didn't have it until recently because you couldn't afford to build it until recently. And you didn't have the technologies uh, available until recently. And now you've got the money, you've got the technology, and you still have the need, whether the United States Navy is out there or not. The Chinese also were well aware that the United States Navy can be turned against them at any, any moment, and they would have to be prepared to defend themselves in order to ensure freedom of navigation. Um, it's very, very easy to imagine the United States block sort of calling a, a, a blockade of China, of, of Taiwan, a protective barrier or something like that. But heck, if China couldn't sail its ships to Taiwan, they would be in really, really, really bad shape economically. Taiwan is such an important part of that. The same thing with Taiwan being uh, China's China being Taiwan's largest trading partner. The joke is, is that if the Chinese were going to decide to blockade uh, Taiwan economically and put the pressure on them, they'd end up mining Shanghai, Hong Kong, and, and half of their own ports because that's where the commerce comes from, not from outside of the uh, of the area. Right. So I think there's a lot of justification for China to have a large, powerful navy. Um, and I think that the threat from their navy to ours is relatively small. Um, we can, if you want to twist my arm and make me say growing. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll admit to some of that. Um, but still in terms of, of, of who can control the seaways, uh, right now, I don't think there's a whole lot of contest there. And I don't think that the Chinese are going to ever in, in, in the near term be in a position. Keep in mind the other naughty little secret here. And that is the United States military is well blooded. We've been at war constantly for the last 75 some years, we're getting pretty good at it. And China has not fired a, a shot in anger in, in, on, on the open seas ever, really. I mean, you have to go back to, to the age of sails in order to find a time when they actually fought a, a maritime battle um, or, or a major air battle or even something larger than human waves in Korea. Um, they're not a blooded army. They're not an experienced army. Um, and they're also a con uh, military, I should say. And they're also a conscript military, which is generally considered to be a, a weaker than a volunteer force. So I, I would not be sweating bullets that the Chinese are going to be taking over the role of the U.S. Navy anytime soon. I would also not be worried that these acts are such aggressive acts that they require some kind of 
dramatic U.S. pushback. Um, again, the status quo has worked for 70 some, seven some decades. I don't know why anyone would want to change it, adjust it, or make any uh, mess with it at all when something works has worked so well, kept the peace, and allowed the trade to flow. Um, depending on which point of view you come from, all that money flowing back and forth is a guarantee of peace. Yeah. Um, Man, is there anywhere where a guy can learn about if there's a fight at the country club at all between the regular businessmen and the military industrial complex guys? I mean, yeah, there's yeah. so much money at stake here on both sides, but I don't hear where Walmart is, you know, rallying the forces against Lockheed, man. No, I think, I, you know, it's an interesting question and it would be fun to, to, to be at one of those charity dinners and listen in, uh, if, if there was some of that going on, I, I want to see would, some blood, man, at least or, or, some or, people or, beating over the head with a golf club or something, something like that. Yeah. Like Caddyshack. And then in the end, the Walmart wins and we all get cheap plastic goods. No, I, you know, I, I think there's room for everybody in there. I think that that's kind of how, if I had to take a guess of how these guys kind of sort this all uh -huh. out, it's like, we're not going to attack China. You know, we, we got to talk tough here and there but we're not going to attack china we'll have a cold and war but not that cold not frozen solid there. we got this we yeah. got this yeah, there's so many sense. reasons for a war not to take place that pretending that a few of those reasons matter enough that we have to spend trillions and trillions of dollars on weapons is you know just one of those wink wink nudge 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 things come mm -hmm. on walmart you know how to play the game well you and know I with me all roads uh, lead back to yemen and there's that great uh, new york times story about when trump put these tariffs on china yeah that it made so many people in heavy industry in america angry and so his trade representative pete navarro basically struck up this relationship with raytheon and their leaders mm -hmm as a way, you know, in their words, to make industry happy. Just lumping all industry together and saying, but obviously, correctly, that the military is where we can directly pour federal government billions into the hands of the people who we've pissed off here and make well, them sure. happy. Or it's at least, you know, to some it's of so them. Much, and so this will help broaden. Yeah, and then it was Raytheon that insisted that Trump veto the war powers resolutions on Yemen. And he did at their at their direct behest. I mean, it is a New York Times piece, but they talked to Navarro and people can read it for themselves. I, I admit it is Charlie Savage's same newspaper. So <laughs> don't get me wrong, but it's pretty solid piece there. And you can see their thinking that like, well, if we're going to piss them off there, we'll try to make them happy here. And in the expense of how many Yemenis again, that doesn't matter to them. Nope. Um, but yeah, I mean... Uh, speaking of libertarianism and all of this stuff, Frederick Bastiat, the great French libertarian, um, you know, radical economist, free market guy from, I don't know what the 1850s and sixties, I think, um, he, uh, said where goods do not cross border armies will. And so this is why to guarantee free trade. In fact, like that economic interdependence prevents violence from breaking out. You hear all this whining and complaining now from Hawks that um, the way that they phrase it is the Germans were fools to ignore Donald Trump's advice that they should buy all their natural gas from Texans instead of being uh, foolishly dependent 
on the Russians because now the Russians are having this war and blackmail them. But my take on that was entirely different, which was I think the Americans helped to monger this war specifically in order to break the growing German-Russian relationship as signified by that Nord Stream 2 pipeline and to prevent that economic interdependence, which necessitates, especially once it's really established and the gas is flowing one way and the dollars the other, uh, or the euros, I guess, um, then that necessitates peace. And it incentivizes peace talks rather than pouring more weapons in and prolonging conflicts for the special interests of separate groups of people and that kind of thing. It seemed to me that like that was part too. of why they helped monger that war in the first place. But so love, this is why we want to keep trade going with China at all costs. I think because we like the Communist Party over there. It's uh, We like that they're not really communists anymore. That's good. It's still a one-party dictatorship. Nobody likes them. But the point is preventing them and us from trading H-bombs at all costs. That's the only thing that matters in the world is not having nuclear war between the major powers. Well, I think your 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 situation is is set because I just I just looked up some of the figures. You know, prior to just prior to COVID, uh, Taiwan's investment in China was 188 billion, more than the Chinese investment here in the United States. The cross-strait trade itself was 149 billion dollars. Uh, it's just a staggering amount of, of money. U.S. The U.S. investment in China mm -hmm. just passed over one trillion dollars, and the Chinese have 145 billion dollars invested in the United States. Awesome! It's an incredible amount of money, and I think uh, I love the phrasing and what you just uh, just said there. It necessitates peace, right? To keep it stable, to keep it going. By the way, please address this. I, I don't want to sound patronizing and jerky about this. People are really concerned about this. The Chinese are buying up a bunch of American land. What does that mean, Peter? Does that mean something? Seriously. It means, it means they still own a lot less of it than the than the Germans do, than the Japanese do, than the British do, and, and all these other countries. Land in America is one of the greatest investments you can you can put your money into. If you or I had enough money that we could go out and buy parcels of land, I mean, big chunks of land, then to heck with your stupid 401k and, and your, uh, your, your mutual funds and things like that. Boy, land is just the way to, to go. They're not making much more of it, and uh, everybody wants it, and it's valuable stuff. It doesn't fall apart. It doesn't get old. Um, land is a good thing to own. It's a great investment. The Chinese are also our second largest holder, overseas holder of U.S. Treasury bonds. So they're buying a bunch of those uh, as well. The Japanese are still buying most, more than the Chinese. But there's just, I think the thing is just to say that there's this incredible amount of money that passes back and forth between the United States and, and China and between China and Taiwan. And it, as you put it, it necessitates peace. It's the only condition under which everyone can keep making this money. Um, the fascinating thing is in the case of the United States and, and, and China, you know, they're one of the few countries we don't sell weapons to. And we're still finding ways to have $145 billion worth of, of commerce um, without a single F-16 or, or howitzer mixed into the, the, the mix. It's quite a staggering accomplishment. And the number of people who are in positions of power that would want to maintain that status quo, to maintain that flow of money, I think is more than enough to guarantee, necessitate 
mm-hmm. piece. Right. And, and, you know, back to the whole thing about, yeah, it ain't because we love them so much or whatever. In fact, you take the exact opposite way. This is how you maintain peace between people who don't like each other very much. This is how people well, get along in the world all the time with people they don't like is, well, is I'm going to have to sh- keep my lip zipped because this guy's paying me money today. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Or I'm paying him for the thing that I need. And in so we go about our business as we call ourselves gentlemen. That means you don't say everything that's on your mind about <laughs> the people that you're doing business with while you're doing business with them. It works at the bar. It works in international diplomacy. It's a good rule of, uh, of life there. Yeah, you know, yeah. the thing is, is that and this is something that has always troubled me, um, is Neville Chamberlain, you know, goes to Munich and screws up one time with Adolf Hitler. And forever after, appeasement is labeled, is what diplomacy gets labeled as. Right. And in fact, you do your diplomacy oftentimes with the worst of people. And really, it's, his war guarantee to Poland was far more foolish than his, what, sellout of Czechoslovakia? What was he supposed to do, field an army in Czechoslovakia? The Sudetenland, right? And so, I mean, the whole, the whole point of that, though, is that forever after, diplomacy has been, it's diplomacy, comma, appeasement, comma, and that's not the way to do it. It's the same thing that's kept us from, from negotiating fully, for example, with the Iranians. It's like, well, they're the Iranians. They're the bad guys. They're, they're, they're evil. Um, well, that's who you sometimes have to talk to in order to get things done. You've got to talk to the people who don't like you in order to make peace treaties. Um, I heard that in, in its most extreme and stupid forms during the Trump administration when Trump was trying to find some inroads with North Korea and people were talking about how, oh, you can't give things to North Korea because they'll never, they'll never uh, follow through or what have you. Um, it's appeasement. They're just tricking you and things like that. And of course, that's the stupidest thing you can possibly say. You conduct diplomacy with your enemies as well as occasionally with your friends, but your friends don't really need the fine touches that diplomacy with your enemies do. Yeah. Even James that, Baker said that, and he killed like 50,000 people. Well, 20. Yeah, there's no, there's nothing to slow you down when you need to go out and stir the, you know, stir it up a little bit too. But the idea is, is that with China, that we've managed to create this kind of economic interdependence. And that's what it is. It's, it's interdependence. It's not just happy business. They need us. We need them. And we've managed to do it without weapons in the trade mix. Yeah. We've managed to do it for now seven some decades without a war breaking out. Mm-hmm. We've managed to manage the conflict. We've managed to find diplomatic language like the Taiwan Relations Act that allows us to fall back on a, a peaceful kind of a safe ground. Like when tensions get too high, everybody retreats to the neutral corner of the Taiwan Relations Act, for example. And when we do have troubles, incidents, what have you, I mean, the Chinese went to full-on war against us in Korea, and we managed to keep that within the boundaries and stay on our side of the yellow line. And as long as those things can be done, you've got a fine relationship there, and you've got good people managing it. And boy, would you be lucky to have that with other countries around the world. Yeah, absolutely. All right, just to wrap up here, final point is back to libertarianism at the beginning there. You know, in the 1990s and, you know, around that era when I was younger, I always really liked the right-wing anti-war stuff. Mm. And I really like left-wing anti-war stuff, too. They'll teach you all about the CIA coup in Guatemala and things you need to know. But the right-wing anti-war stuff always really appealed to me. 
Because if it's all God and country and George Washington and American flags, well, it's really easy to just get behind whatever foreign conflict is going on. It's us versus them and USA and God and country and all that simple. So then when you have a guy like that, yeah, yeah, when you have a guy like that who's saying, no, these wars are stupid and horrible and wrong, you know, it's not for hippie reasons. It's something else. And then oftentimes it's because they're smart and they really know what's going on and it ain't right what we're doing. That kind of so you have even like the Birchers. This is what really got the Birchers in trouble. It wasn't, you know, being kind of uh, racist against black people and stuff back then. It was that they were against the war in Vietnam. And that's what got them read out of the uh, right by Buckley and all that kind of thing. But anyway, my point is that I always kind of liked that kind of stuff. But then when and, and I never really knew other than Harry Brown. I hadn't even really heard Harry Brown talk about foreign policy that much. I don't think. Um and the libertarianism I was exposed to wasn't really concerned to, with this kind of thing. But then finally, in the lead up to Iraq War II, was when I finally started uh, getting online regularly in 2002 and started mm-hmm. reading antiwar.com and lewrockwell.com. And there they had basically the same kind of right-wing anti-war view that's like doesn't look kindly on the United Nations and uh, and doesn't like any of this foreign interventionism and all the inflationary money and all the centralization of power that comes with it and all the great libertarian and, and conservative reasons for opposing a world empire and that kind of thing. But point is, what really impressed me was they were doves on China, unlike so many of the people on the right who you know, we're sort of left in that Cold War mentality from before. As long as the flag is red, it doesn't matter if it's Mao or if it's Deng Xiaoping or who it is that, yeah. or his successors that, you know, we want to boycott them right out of business. We don't want to trade with them. We're terrified of them and communism, 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 whatever. And then I read Lou Rockwell going, no, 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 dude, that's all wrong. There's no such thing as China anyway. It's just a billion individual human beings. And we here's how we're going to treat them as as people. And if our government gets in between us and them, then it's committing a sin just like if their government does. And that's how we ought to look at it. And we ought to be friends. And this earth is big enough for both of us. And it has to be. And it is what it is. And that kind of deal. And so that was just really appealed to me that, yeah. you know, here are people who really were familiar with all these same kind of right-leaning arguments against interventionism, but they weren't on board for kind of the typical, when you go that far to the right, like more kind of populist right, outside of D.C. circles, right wing. Um, they just weren't buying into the anti-China scaremongering stuff. In fact, Lou had an article called From Death Camp to Civilization, and it was about <laughs> how you shut up with all of your stupid anti-China-ness, not you, Peter, but everybody, um, and this was like when there was lead paint on the toys and a couple of bad tubes of toothpaste or whatever it was. And he was saying, hey, 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 we're talking about the communists reduced this nation down to caveman status. They had to start all over again and they're doing great. And so you chill out and coming from a guy like Lou, that really sticks. You know what I mean? Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Amen. So, oh, yeah, man. Three cheers for libertarianism. Okay, well, listen, man, I already took up way too much of your time, but, uh, well, not by my standards, but probably by yours. But I really appreciate you uh, sharing your afternoon with us, or I guess it's morning out there in Hawaii, but anyway. Never a problem, always a pleasure. Scott, thank you. Thank you, Peter. That's uh, the great Peter Van Buren. Check him out. And by the way, I don't think I read off the name of all these articles, so let me tell you now, everybody, there are three really great ones at the American Conservative Magazine. How does Asia feel about Nancy Pelosi? Nancy Pelosi's Pointless Trip to Taiwan and Strategic Ambiguity Works. And that one's a real charmer. I think you'll like it. Thanks, guys. The Scott Horton Show and Anti-War Radio 
can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, APSradio.com, Antiwar.com, ScottHorton.org, and LibertarianInstitute.org.